This is Macro Horizons, episode 38. Trump Arendum, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 30th. And a reminder, we miss rate cuts most of all as autumn yields start to fall. Views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So Q3 is coming to an end. Not soon enough. I couldn't agree more. It has been an exciting few weeks in the treasury market and in the process with the drama that's playing out in Washington, some of the concerns about the longevity of the trade war have come back into focus. There is this notion that in an attempt to provide the media with a different emphasis, the administration might push forward more aggressively and come up with a trade deal. I'm pretty skeptical that that actually comes to fruition, but as October gets underway, it will be interesting to see how it all plays out. Obviously, quarter-end considerations are going to be very relevant into the 30th of September, while the dislocations in the repo market certainly have everyone on guard for some funding stress into quarter end, our baseline expectations are that the Fed will be more than adequately prepared to make sure that there isn't any durable strain on the system. At the end of the day, we're far less concerned about the macro implications from a short-lived series of front-end funding stresses, if for no other reason than it's a collateral issue, rather than it is more of an issue of stressed borrowing conditions per se. And that is a bit of a nuanced argument, but as it pertains to 10 and 30-year yields, our takeaway is that the impact is minimal at best. The market is in the process of defining the trading range, which is something that we have noted several times over the course of the year. And to a large extent, we have seen two or three meaningful repricings lower in the range that 10 and 30-year yields have inhabited. And at this moment, call it 143 to 190 is the preferred range, and we don't expect that to be challenged anytime soon. In a more material backup in rates, there are a few opening gaps that we'll be watching, most notable of which is close to 178. That should provide some interim support, and we'll see if any material buying interest emerges there. The Fed speak that has been coming in recently leaves us with the impression that there is still another 25 basis point rate cut. Recall that one of the Fed's big challenges at this point in the fine-tuning easing campaign was signaling to the market that they might be done soon. 
And I would say that they're doing a reasonably good job of communicating that another quarter point might be needed, but then it will be time to take a step back and reassess how effective the preemptive moves have ultimately been. This week's data highlights were limited to the larger-than-expected drop in consumer confidence, which brings us back to one of the core issues that we've been concerned about in the U.S. economy, and that is at some point the consumer starts to retrench, spending falls, and that will be the ultimate origin of any recession in the U.S., particularly one of meaning. The other data highlight was a bit in the weeds and accompanied the revisions to second quarter real GDP. The headline number itself was unrevised, but if we look at corporate profits, they were adjusted lower to plus 3.8% for the quarter. That's versus minus 3.8% in the first quarter. Said differently, there was zero profit growth effectively in the first half of the year. By no means a paradigm-shifting development, but nonetheless, as we start to focus on year-end, it is something to keep in mind. Ian, uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky on line one for you. Tell him I'm reading the FOMC transcript. You mean minutes? Speaking of the FOMC minutes, we actually do get an update on the 9th of October, a couple weeks away, admittedly. But this particular set of minutes will be interesting, given what has been going on in the very front end of the market, the Fed's decision not only to cut rates by 25 basis points, but also lower interest on excess reserves by an additional five basis points for an aggregate of 30 basis points on that specific rate. So obviously, the past week and a half have been extremely informative for the current state of the repo market. And one of the most extraordinary things to me has been the fact that we're talking about $250 billion or a quarter trillion dollars, that's a large number, of additional liquidity injections from the Fed over quarter end. So clearly the quantity of reserves had gotten closer to scarcity than anyone had appreciated. Well, what's the natural response? Either the Fed needs to inject more reserves via these repo operations or they need to start growing the balance sheet again, which equates to reserves. You know, how much they grow the balance sheet, I think things like the minutes or some Fed speak would be helpful to discuss, but something on the order of that $250 billion isn't unreasonable. So I guess from my perspective, I expect them to actually come out and announce that they're going to start growing the balance sheet at the next meeting at the end of October. It's more a question of how quickly do they grow and what do they grow with? There's also the open question about whether or not the sitting repo facility becomes a standing repo facility, and of course, whether or not the Fed delivers another quarter point cut. And at this point, at least according to the futures market pricing, another 25 basis point cut is almost a certainty by the end of the year, which leaves the focus on whether that will be October or December. Again, looking at market pricing, we see roughly a 50% chance at each of those meetings. So at least in my mind, it will come down to how the economic data plays out and what context any Fed speak between now and then might offer for how policymakers are thinking about the upcoming rate decisions. I continue to expect that they go in October, all else being equal, and that's primarily simply because of the parallels with the 90s. I think that the market is expecting it to a large extent, and if we don't get a 
25 basis point cut in October, there will be a bit of pushback from the market. And as we've seen recently, that has transpired with a flattening and or inversion of the yield curve. I'd actually note that the price action over the course of the last week, week and a half has really been quite subdued overall. We saw 10-year yields bottom out at 143, subsequently sell off roughly 50 basis points to reach 191, give or take, and we've drifted back lower into the middle of the range since then. Now, this is important context given that investors are actively in the process of determining what the new equilibrium point is for 10-year yields. There's a strong argument that by recentering the range in which the treasury market is going to trade over the course of the next two or three quarters, we can have a better sense of the extremes with which we'll see. So, for example, if 10-year yields manage to drift back to 2% without causing any major disruptions in risk assets, it would then be reasonable to anticipate in a more dramatic sell-off scenario that we could go north of 225 or 250 tens. On the other hand, if we find ourselves over the course of the next couple of weeks with 10-year yields consistently trading within a 150 to 165 range, then the prospects for a zero handle on 10-year yields become far more likely, especially as we look into 2020. I'd actually take the other side of that October-December debate. And of course, this is path-dependent on domestic data staying quite resilient. We'll get some updates on ISM and NFP in the coming week. But a lot of my thinking goes that the Fed would prefer to do that 75 basis points of stabilization, but they don't appear to be in a big rush to do it. Moreover, if you look back at, say, 2017, when they were incrementally hiking every quarter, they actually called off a hike on the moment that they announced balance sheet runoff. Well, if we have a world where the Fed's going to announce going back to asset growth on October 30th, all things equal, they can afford to stop the every meeting 25 basis point cut cycle, at least for one, announce balance sheet growth and cut in December. The fact that you're even seeing some members like Evan suggest that his base case isn't for another cut in 2019 to me, indicates the lack of urgency on the committee. Eventually, it'll need to happen. And likely, even if they didn't cut in October, there will be some dissents, not just Bullard. You make a very good point, And it really does come down to how willing the Fed is to risk an adverse market reaction simply to slow the pace of rate cuts. Now, very reasonable to say that the reintroduction of balance sheet expansion should count as some type of rate cut. Although recall when we were in the crisis and the Fed announced its first round of QE and then its second round of QE, there was a great deal of debate over how much each $100 billion worth of QE was really worth in terms of rate cuts. If I recall, most of the research centered around somewhere between five to seven basis points per $100 billion. So to say $250 billion worth of expansion on the balance sheet is worth roughly 25 basis points might be an overestimation. But within the context of what the Fed is attempting to accomplish, I think the bigger risk is that the market and investors actually read it as true QE rather than as we've been focused on this notion of QE light. Yeah, and on that note, 
This isn't QE. The repo operations are not QE. QE is flooding the system with a dramatic amount of reserves and trying to push down long rates to spur economic activity. What the Fed is doing is not trying to flood the system with a dramatic amount by any means. It's just get to a healthier, more classically abundant level of reserves and not really impact 10-year yields in any form whatsoever. The notion that this indirectly equates to a rate cut, though, could get some supporting evidence when you look at correlated rates in money markets. For example, say the Fed decided to do all $250 billion in bills. Well, one would expect that to lower bill rates in the front end, lower bill rates permeate across to other asset classes. So you would see some bill OIS tightening as a first pass. That spillover leads to lower money market rates. Is it as impactful as a full rate cut? Probably not, but directionally consistent, and if they do want to try to stage this in that way, at least helps with the communication channel. Of course, if everything hits the fan with Brexit before October 31st, totally different ballgame, and we're not talking about repo anywhere near as much. All right, so just to recap, the Fed is going to inject more reserves into the system, going to effectively lower borrowing costs, and that's really going to spur the return of core inflation and jobs growth. Oh, wait, I thought we had core inflation and an upward trajectory when we look at core CPI. And jobs growth with NFP coming on Friday uh, seems to be good, if not great at this point. So that brings me back to why is the Fed actually cutting rates? And we know that it has very little to do with the domestic economy and is rather preempting the risk that what's going on in Europe and China and the rest of the world eventually starts to seep through to the domestic economy. And speaking of events abroad, I think an important distinction to make is while the Fed is not doing QE, the ECB is. And Draghi's last rate cut and introduction of more asset purchases is for the explicit purpose of lowering real rates and stimulating inflation. Now, this is the latest reminder of something that we talk about a lot, which is the efficacy of monetary policy at this stage. Clearly, the ECB is approaching the point that they're doing all they can. And Draghi's explicit remarks that something has got to come from the fiscal side, whether it be from Germany or another growth engine on the continent, could be indicative of a broader shift of how inflation will need to be stoked in the future. Yeah, and that is very consistent with the struggles that the Fed has been facing as well. And that is, are monetary policy officials simply pushing against a string and there's nothing that can be done to truly generate demand-side inflation? The best perhaps that we can hope for from central bankers is simply asset price inflation, which obviously has a series of issues linked with it, not least of which when we look at the core consuming group, particularly within the U.S., the primary spenders are in that 25 to 40-year-old cohort, and that's a group that simply has very little beneficial ownership in the equity market. So the wealth effect from their recent run-up in stocks hasn't been useful. And given the experience of the crisis, that subset has been reluctant to participate in the real estate market. Reluctant or priced out? Speaking of the housing market and my lack of participation in it... Hey, being a renter is participating in the housing market. Fair enough. But the data on the housing front this past week was broadly pretty solid. And it brings up that idea that perhaps we are now starting to enter or have entered the period of the year where we see this upswing in economic optimism and upswing in economic data, at least versus consensus estimates. 
And if you look at the surprise indices, you can see an upward trend, quite striking, actually. And as that pertains to how we anticipate the Treasury market to trade into the end of the year, I think it's very consistent with the notion that there is going to be some type of upward pressure on rates. I've been somewhat surprised that it hasn't manifested itself a bit more durably than we have witnessed thus far. But that doesn't mean that we won't find ourselves in a situation in November or December with 10-year yields sustainably above 2% and a reasonable amount of optimism being priced in for the year ahead. Not to mention the recent inflation figures. Yes, within the second quarter GDP print, we saw an increase in core PCE, which admittedly it was somewhat stale data. However, it's certainly consistent with the trend that we've seen in core CPI over the course of the last several months. Also within the GDP revisions, I found it notable that corporate profitability was revised lower from 53 to 3.8%. Now, that 3.8% positive growth offset the 3.8% decline in the prior quarter, so this effectively nets to zero corporate profitability gains so far in 2019. This is troubling at this point in the economic expansion because once corporate profits come under pressure, we tend to see the rationalization of labor forces, which invariably leads to layoffs and the damage that it does to consumer confidence is the transfer mechanism to growth that I'm most concerned about given the overall state of affairs. Yeah, but Ian, this is the modern economy in the age of the tech unicorns. What does profitability have to do with valuations? Well, that may be true for a few specific high-tech firms that have been the focus of markets in recent weeks. At the end of the day, the vast majority of employment in the U.S. doesn't come from those sectors. And as a result, corporate profits do matter to the prospects for a shift in the labor market, which while historically a lagging indicator, we've really yet to see any material upward pressure on the unemployment rate or downward pressure on NFP, at least on a sustainable basis. Ah, remember when NFP day used to be the most exciting day in the market? Apparently now it's corporate tax day and coupon settlements. Ah, still, don't do repo. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will receive some solid fundamental information. That isn't to suggest that the headline risk coming out of Washington, Beijing, and Europe isn't going to continue to be influential, but nonetheless with the employment report, as well as the ISM manufacturing update, we anticipate at least a momentary refocus on the domestic fundamentals. Taking a step back, We're certainly cognizant that it's not the domestic fundamentals that have been driving the Fed's effort to fine-tune monetary policy, but that doesn't mean that the relatively strong performance of the domestic economy hasn't prevented the Fed from being more aggressive. Said differently, if we actually see a disappointment in private non-farm payrolls on Friday, the question will very quickly become, is 75 basis points in total easing adequate to offset the risk that the weakness seen overseas ultimately trickles through to the U.S. economy. Within the details of Friday's report, we'll be looking at the wage figures. Average hourly earnings have been on the upswing, 
so have real wages, both of which should intuitively contribute to the upward pressure on core inflation. And while core inflation has been running higher than expectations over the course of the last three months, the translation of sustained wage gains to sustained upward pressure on prices has yet to be truly demonstrated. Our expectations for an exciting week in terms of movements for 10 and 30 year yields are relatively limited. We're in such a definable and frankly comfortable range for investors at this point. We push to the low yield of 143 at the end of the summer backed up a bit, got to 190. We're hovering around that 165 to 175 range. In light of the global macro risks, it's a really difficult fade at 2%, but it's a lot easier to consider selling tins once we get anywhere closer to 150, unless of course we see any further deterioration of the global economy. To some extent, the market has been preoccupied with the drama playing out in Washington that has had some incremental impact on risk assets, but any flight to quality as a result of that particular political intrigue, we expect to be short-lived. If we think about the situation in the late 90s with the Clinton administration, we actually saw equities perform reasonably well despite the impeachment trial, although the parallels with the current moment in terms of the Fed being engaged in a comparable fine-tuning rate adjustment that totaled 75 basis points are certainly not wasted on us, especially given the fact that recession risks continue to run high, the curve is super flat, flirting with inversion, and nothing has really shifted positively in terms of the global growth outlook. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we would like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the end of the year quickly approaches, we're reminded of the time-tested wisdom once offered by Old Man Lingen, who observed, The key to achieving happiness is to sufficiently lower your expectations. Thanks, Pop. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting 
taking any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.